And that's why Trevor chose that psalm for us to think about hope and have some ideas before I speak of, of what you think uh, in your spiritual life with God, what, your, what the hope is. Um, this is a new sermon series. I'm doing the uh, first section tonight and then after Christmas in the evening services we'll carry on looking through 1 Peter. What I'm going to do is think about three different understandings that I've had um, of what a living hope is. When I do this I'm not doing it to try and encourage you to think that you should be where I am or that the way I've moved from one understanding to another is some form of process that we should be going through and that I've suddenly become enlightened and found the real answer. It's just that I've, I've had different... I know I've had different thoughts on this and in terms of looking at what the passage means tonight, it might help um, if you've got a particular idea yourself to hear other thoughts. But first of all, as it's, as it's our first look at this letter, a, a brief overview so we know what we're actually looking at. This letter claims to be, and as far as I can see, all academics and intellectuals agree, to be written by the Apostle Peter. It was written sometime between AD 60 and AD 68, and that can be quite, quite easily judged because within the letter... Peter refers to Paul's letters that he wrote while he was in prison, which dates his knowledge to no earlier than AD 60. And we know that Peter was martyred by the Emperor Nero, and Nero ruled from AD 54 to AD 68. So it can't be any later than 68, it can't be any earlier than 60. It may have been written in Rome. There's reference later on in, in, the, in the letter to Babylon, and that could have been a euphemism for Rome as the godless centre of the world. But there was actually a small town called Babylon on the Euphrates River in Iraq at that time, and he may have just been there. He may have been referring to that. We, we, we don't know. I think most of the scholars reckon he was in Rome. It was written to the scattered church, Scattered because they were being persecuted under the Emperor Nero in what's known as the Diaspora, the scattering. Um, it's, we're not talking about it tonight, but it's ironic that um, the, the early attempts to snuff out this new faith, this Jewish sect, as it was seen by the authorities at the beginning, um, actually had the opposite effect, a bit like throwing water onto a chip pan fire. Instead of putting it out, the whole thing explodes. And this small group of people that were all concentrated in Jerusalem were pushed out across the known world, and that's how the gospel travelled. They may not have gone if they hadn't been pushed. The letter contains two focuses. The first is praise to God for his grace and salvation, and then it goes on to give exhortations to holiness of life. And as the weeks go on in the series, we'll see these themes picked up. Tonight we're looking at that first part and, and the idea of a living hope. The translation we heard the reading from, as you know, was Tom, Tom Wright. If you don't know Tom Wright, he, 
He was, uh, a while ago, the Bishop of Durham. Um, he's gone back into the academic world now, I think. I, I, I don't know how he managed to be the Bishop of Durham and write so many books, but if you've never heard of them, I would recommend a series he wrote on the New Testament for everyone. So every book of the New Testament, John, uh, Matthew, Romans, whatever, there's Romans for everyone. And Tom goes through those books in small bites, giving a nice little um, one-page or two-page thought of his own, his own reflection on that reading, and translates it himself. And having finished the whole New Testament, he then took all these little translations and made it into a complete volume for the New Testament, which is where we heard tonight. His title for this passage is Genuine Faith and Sure Hope. And to summarise what he said, God has fathered us through a second birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ. He says that we need to live through suffering and trials and that these trials will be beneficial to us for the refining of our faith and will lead to the salvation of our souls. So living hope, what does it mean? I wonder what you thought when we were listening to that psalm, what your hope is. There was a time when, to me, living hope meant I'm alive. I have hope because I'm alive. It was about my physical awareness. And that I can only have hope while I'm alive. When I die, it's too late. I couldn't find what I wanted to find on the internet for this, but I found an equivalent. There was a T-shirt with a motto on it, and it said, People on earth hate the word repent. People in hell wish they could hear it one more time. But they can't, because it's too late. We only have this life in which to grasp um, our understanding of Christ and come to faith. This understanding, in a way, puts us in control of our own destiny. It's up to me. If I, if I take the offer that's been handed out, then, then that hope becomes energised. Or maybe the living hope is because I have the faith. I've got a faith and so now I have a living hope. It's true because I believe it's true. But what happens if I begin to doubt or if I begin to deny the truths that I've believed up till now? Does me starting to deny it mean that it's no longer true? I don't think so. I've always been inspired by the passage in Daniel when he and his friends are threatened by King Nebuchadnezzar that they'll be thrown into the furnace if they don't acknowledge him and worship him over their own God. Daniel says that my faith tells me that God can save me. He doesn't go on to say, 
But if he doesn't save me, I'm not going to believe in him anymore. His belief in God does not depend on his experience. I believe in him. He says, whether or not he saves me, even if he chooses not to save me, I will still worship him and not you. His relationship with God was deeper and greater than his own personal experience. If I experience what I feel to be God leaving me, abandoning me, putting me through some trouble, it will not affect the hope I have in him. Our personal faith is changeable. That's why it needs refining. That's why Peter says that our struggles will be made useful. God will make use of our struggles, and I've been careful to put that. Not God will deliberately make troubles happen. God will make use of our struggles to test and perfect our faith. But the faith, not our faith, the faith, the fact that God is there, the faith does not depend on our faith. God will still be God, even if we as individuals deny him or lose faith in him. So I don't think anymore for me that a living hope being about me and where I am is good enough. My experience is a reaction, not the thing that causes the faith to be there in the first place. So the second one, which is one that I've had more recently, living hope because we are enlivened by the Holy Spirit. God lives within us. We have a hope that lives in us because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Peter says that God the Father has given us a second birth. In John's Gospel, chapter 3, Jesus says in verse 3 that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And in verse 5, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Now, born-again Christian is a phrase that can be used for good and for bad. I remember back in the day um, being told, oh, those people over there, they're they're born-again Christians. They're the ones that go around smiling all the time and waving tambourines in the air. You know, you keep away from them. They're a bit bit extreme, those born-again Christians, not like us good Church of England Anglicans. And I used to have fun when this was told me in parishes, looking at their reaction when I pointed out that having been baptised and confirmed, these very people should be seeing themselves as born again. Because born again is about starting over, and that's what happens in our new life. The living hope in this example is that we have a hope to go to heaven which is kept alive in us through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised to be with us always, even when he's not physically on earth. He said he would send the Holy Spirit who would encourage, guide and strengthen us. And we know 
of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When we allow the Spirit to live in our lives and change us from within as we become sanctified, that we should see more of these things naturally occurring in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But is this enough? Is there another way of looking at living hope? This is what I asked myself recently. And what I did to see, is there another way? Because I was perfectly happy with this one. The Holy Spirit lives in me. That gives me my living hope in God. What I did was something we've been doing in our house group recently. We started studying, this is a little plug, started studying the pilgrim um, course, which is a basic discipleship course. And it uses something called Lectio Divina, which sounds a bit posh, but it just means divine writing. In other words, it's looking at the Bible, but it's a style of doing it. And what we do is we read a passage very slowly and carefully, and then we sit quietly and reflect and then read it a second time. And if we have time, we might even read it a third time. Uh, but But the important thing is that when we're reading, we clear our minds of anything we already know about that passage. So that we're not coming into it expecting something give an example when i when i read or hear the account on the emmaus road of the disciples walking along and christ comes along next to them as soon as i know i'm hearing it i'm looking forward and thinking i can't wait to hear them say did our hearts not burn within us as he explained the scriptures to us on the road straight away i'm thinking that that means that as i'm listening to the rest of the story i'm not listening i'm just saying come on keep going keep going get to the bit i want So with the Lectio Divina, the idea is you say, put aside your current interpretation or your favourite word or phrase, put it there and just listen as if you've never heard it before and you never know what might pop up and surprise you and blow me down. When I did this to this reading, something popped up and you may be well ahead of me. You might be thinking, well, my understanding of living hope hasn't happened yet. Why hasn't he come to the obvious one? Who knows? Well, living hope. First of all, before I say it, um, does anyone know what the two words that Brian Blessed is always asked to quote when he goes out in public? I haven't got much living hope of this because I asked our house group this week and no one knew and I thought it was quite obvious. Yes. Oh! Yes, thank you. Look at that. Someone knows. Gordon's alive! If you ever watch Flash Gordon, uh, the forces for good are meant to fight against Ming the Merciless and these nasty armies and they are despondent and without hope, because their hero, Flash Gordon, is presumed to be dead. And then, as they're planning, what can we do? How can we beat this nasty man? Someone says, well, he's not that invincible. He didn't even manage to kill Flash. Gordon's alive! And the next minute, they're out there, fully powerful, with total hope, because he's alive. They weren't saying, well, we're not dead, so we've got hope. It was 
Flash Gordon's still alive. Hey, look at this, instant. Are you going to play it? Yes, please. Only waiting for the right moment to attack him. Yes, and Ming knows that too. So, by delivering you, I allay his suspicions. <laughs> I gain time. Our weapons are inferior. We need another year's preparation. Ming's not unbeatable. With all his men, he couldn't even kill Flash. Gordon's alive. He's in our boyer. Prince Baron is aiding him. Baron. I tell you, yeah. now is the time to strike. Now is the time to strike. Gordon's alive. It's important. I was talking about this at home the other day, and we were saying, I, I said, I, I've got another example in case you weren't up on Flash Gordon. And my daughter said, don't use that one. They won't understand that, this second one. And there's an irony, a beautiful irony, because Amy, of our four daughters, is our non-Christian daughter. And she said, why don't you talk about Aslan? From Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe. And I thought, how ironic. C.S. Lewis will be so chuffed because his allegories were meant to explain the Christian truth to people who didn't understand the technical language of the Bible. And there's Amy, and she, of all people, understands the point I was trying to make, which I'll get to in a minute, and how it linked to Flash Gordon. And she said, use Aslan. Because the Pevensey children, (coughs) Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, all witnessed the horrific scene of Aslan being murdered by the white witch on the stone table. And they walked away despondently, knowing that what came next was going to be the battle to end all battles between the forces of good and evil. But then two of the kids come back, and while they're crying by the table, Aslan comes back to life. He's alive And he turns up at the battle and all those people, all those forces for good that were just saying we need to go through the motions, we have no hope of winning, he's going to do it again. (laughs) Yes, please. We should go.
witch knew the true meaning of sacrifice, she might have interpreted the deep magic differently. That when a willing victim who has committed no treachery is killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack, and even death itself would turn backwards. We sent the news that you were dead. Peter and Edmund will have gone to war. We have to help them. We will, dear one, but not alone. Climb on my back. We have far to go and little time to get there. And you may want to cover your ears. Did your hearts not burn within you? When Aslan came back to life, Aslan is alive. While that was on, I noticed underneath it said Aslan's resurrection, and I thought, that's good, but oh, something else. For the very first time watching that, something else hit me, and I thought, he was so clever. Who found Aslan? Who saw him come back to life? The girls, the women. Just like the real thing. Brilliant. Okay, so, living hope. Gordon's alive. Aslan's alive, or Jesus is alive. This is where I am now. My living hope, Jesus is alive. And then I saw, when I did that Lectio thing, the answers in the passage. It's been there all along. We have a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Forget everything else. The living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what does it. His resurrection from the dead, we have an imperishable inheritance. It's kept in heaven for us while we live shielded by God's power through faith. And our faith is refined and perfected through experience. But that experience becomes the means rather than the end of our faith. We don't say, I believe in God because I experience him in some way. If we did that, what happens when we feel abandoned? What happens when prayer doesn't seem to be answered? What happens when the bad guys win? These are all negative experiences, but none of them change the fact that Jesus is alive. He's alive and sitting at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, interceding on our behalf and waiting for the fullness of time when he will return to take his children home to the new Jerusalem. That means that I can say my faith is not reliant on a particular interpretation of the creation story or the credibility of the miracles or whether Jesus was born in a stable, a cave, or a cellar. It doesn't depend on how I feel today, or how well my life is going. It boils down to one thing, the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. Nothing that I say, or do, or feel will change that fact. That is my living hope. I don't worship a dead martyr. I worship the living creator of the universe. 
We mentioned Tom Wright, who was the Bishop of Durham. There was a more infamous Bishop of Durham before him, David Jenkins, and he famously stated that he did not believe in the physical resurrection of Christ. He said it was something that was not needed. He argued that Jesus lives on in our memory and we keep him alive through our Christian actions. Well, to me, this is no different from saying that Elvis still lives because his music is still played and there are many tribute singers dressing up as him. But Elvis has left the building. Jesus has not. If someone can find a sealed tomb containing beyond all doubt the bones of Jesus who called himself the Christ somewhere near Jerusalem, then my living hope will die. As Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But he was raised. Our faith is not futile. The dead are not lost. And our hope in Christ is not for this life only. It is for this life and for eternity. We do not fear death because of our past or future life. We have a living hope in our risen Saviour who has promised to lead us through this life, through death, and into eternal life in our heavenly home. I want to finish by quoting one of our modern contemporary hymn and songwriters in one of my famous, favourite hymns. I was going to choose a different verse and then I thought through the words in my mind and thought, that's a bit obscure. There's another verse which is rather more obvious for this theme. and It goes like this. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace. When fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all. Here, in the love of Christ, I stand. Loving God, we thank you that you give us this living hope. We thank you that you stepped in to our world. You stepped in by using your one opportunity of being with us here on earth to lead us from the mess we've made back to the perfection that you want for us. We thank you that the crucified and resurrected Christ gives us a living hope that one day 
we will see you face to face. We thank you for him. We thank you for our faith. And we thank you that you remain with us from day to day through your Holy Spirit. And we thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.